Okay, we are, we are in Matthew chapter 26, reading from verse 31. Matthew 26, reading from verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Jesus says to them in verse 31, He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. Because the scriptures actually foretell this. And then he says in verse 32, but after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Let me just mention this verse 32. This is a very specific word for after he has been raised from the dead. He commands them. He he says, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So in other words, you're to go to Galilee, but I'll be there ahead of you. Go and meet me in Galilee. This is what, this is what he tells them to do. And actually, this is, this is actually reiterated in Matthew chapter 28, verse 10. After Jesus had risen from the dead... He he sends message to them. He says, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. And then again, it reports in the other Gospels that the angels, when they were at the tomb, they said the same thing. Go to Galilee and meet him there. Guess what? They never went to Galilee. They never went. So can you imagine the resurrected Lord sitting there in Galilee, <laughs> waiting for the disciples to show up? And they never showed up. I mean, they stood up the Lord, the resurrected Lord. They never showed up. 
He told them here. He told them again when He had risen from the dead. The angels who were at the tomb sent messages, Go, meet Him in Galilee. The only time they went to Galilee was much later, and that was to go fishing, but never to meet the Lord. And I wondered, Lord, how many times have I stood You up where, where it was clear that you, know, you wanted me to spend time with You, and, and I said I would you know, commit some time to pray, I'd meet you at some hour to pray, and you were there, and I wasn't. You know, how many times the Lord was just waiting there on me? And, and you see this very specific word. He says, meet me in Galilee. But what I want to focus on this morning, actually, is this verse 31. He says, you will all fall away because of me. This very night. He says, this very night, you're all going to follow, fall away. And then Peter says in verse 33, He says, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He says, look, all of these guys may fall away. So there's 11 disciples left. Judas has already gone out. So so Peter turns to the other 10. He says, these guys may fall away, but not me. And then he he says to him, he says, truly I say to you, that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. So every one of them said, I would never deny you. Even if I have to die with you, I will die. I will not deny you. Jesus said, this very night, you're going to deny me three times, Peter. Just, just, just tonight. It reminds me, um, on Tuesday I was reading about Tony Dungy. So he, he won the Super Bowl, right? So he, he was the winning coach. And that, that is like Shireen's main man. I, I, wish, I wish I had Shireen's attention like Tony Dungy has Shireen's attention. <laughs> Tony Dungy and Peyton Manning. They are, they are um, you know, I, I put their pictures up in my home and wish I could be like them. <laughs> but, but Tony Dungy is this amazing Christian. And, and you may have seen the, the, the Friday before the Super Bowl, there was this, this full-page ad in USA Today that, that uh, uh, Tony Dungy and Lovey Smith, I'm sure somebody else had covered it, but it, talked, it had their testimonies about God and a website you could go to. It was just this tremendous testimony of these fine Christian football coaches in an environment where it's tough to live as a Christian. And it said, you know, that Tony Dungy never raises his voice to anyone. He never uses foul language, and he said to his, his, uh, his team, I will never humiliate any of you. So he said, I'll never humiliate you, I'll never raise my voice to any of you. And can you imagine a football coach? I, I think that, the, how do you, he, Without foul language and raising your voice, is there any vocabulary that these men can speak? If you've ever seen them, it's, it's really, really, um, really quite vivid. It's just, and, and uh, you know, that you, you look at this and you think that this is football, but now you have these two men that are so godly and are walking quite differently. And when I read this, I was reading this on Tuesday morning, and I thought, Lord, I want to be more like Tony Dungy. I'm never going to say an offensive word to anyone. Well, 4.30 p.m. on Tuesday, 
it came out. And it was like, I didn't even make it through the day. So we, we make these sort of commitments. I'm going to do this. I'm going to change. I'm going to be like that. And you see, it's tough to be like that. I think Peter was quite sincere. At that moment, he was ready to die for Jesus. He was ready to die for Jesus. But what we're going to see, and what we're about to see, is that it is much harder to live for Jesus than it is to just die for Jesus. To die for a cause is one thing. To live a life for a cause or for a person is much more difficult. So, in other words, a man may die, you know, for one of his family members, you know, in the heat of some moment, just make a decision to, you know, cast himself in front of the bullets or something. But to live a life that gives of oneself continually for an individual is actually much harder. It is harder to live for a person than to die for them. You know, we will, we will often hear of things of people that risk their life for a total stranger. And this happens. But how about living one's life for the good of a total stranger? That's much more difficult. There's a sincerity of devotion that Peter and the disciples have. That is clear. There's a sincerity here. And their devotion is sincere. But the following through is a whole different story. In verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. So you see that, that what happened is He takes now, He has the eleven disciples with Him He's telling eight of them to sit here while I go over there and pray. He says, I'm going over there to pray. So he didn't even take the eight. He only took with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John. So he only took with him Peter, James, and John. And the other, the other Gospels, when they report it, they don't say the sons of Zebedee. They say and, and James, Peter, James, and John. So we know it's Peter, James, and John he takes with him. The other eight he leaves over here. And he went not far. And it says, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. So here is Jesus, grieved and distressed. And they're not used to seeing him like this. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. Okay, so he takes just those three, he goes off a short distance, and he says, you guys, I want you to watch. So the, the first group, he says, sit here. Just sit here while I go over there and pray. To the next three, he brings them on a little ways. He says, you guys, what I want you to do, he says, um, uh, Keep watch. I want you to remain here and keep watch with me. So he tells these three guys, just keep watch. I don't know if this means pray. I'm sure you could look up this word watch. In the other, in the other Gospels, it actually says in the next instance, he, he, he tells them to pray. But at this point, he tells them, I want you to keep watch. 
And then it says he goes on a short distance. The other gospel says that he goes a stone's throw away. So it's not far. You know, the, the disciples can see him over there. And he goes off and he prays and he says, he falls on his face to the ground praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And, you know, I've looked at this and I've often wondered what this means and I've heard a number of interpretations of what this means. And I think the best interpretation that I've, that I've read is the interpretation that's actually given by, by uh, Messianic Jews concerning this portion. That Jesus well knew what was written in the Scriptures. It was written for Him to die. Jesus was born to die on the cross. There was no... There was, there was no... Uh, feeling in him that I want to be spared from the cross. This couldn't be because he knew this is where he was going. There was no other way because it was written. Remember what he had said to them in verse 31. He says, I know you're all going to fall away because it's written. It's written that, that, the, that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Whatever is written must come to pass. You can't change that. And Jesus knew that this was coming. But what is never written in anywhere in the Old Testament is the separation from God that Jesus went through on the cross. The death on the cross, the physical death on the cross for the sins of humanity are well recorded. But never the separation from God. And Jesus went through three hours of separation from God. And that was from, from, from 3 p.m., from uh, uh, noon till 3 p.m., he went through the, this separation from God. Where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the only time on the, that he ever said in his whole life, he ever addressed God as God. It was always Father or my Father. That is the only way he addressed him. But at that point, it was my God. Because it was now a judicial relationship. There was no more. This flowing relationship that he had had before. And then at the end, when he said it is finished, he said, Father, receive my spirit. And so he was reunited. And so that, that, I think, of all the explanations that I've read, makes the most sense because it was never prophesied that he had to undergo this sort of spiritual separation from God. Nowhere in the Old Testament. But that's what we read in the New Testament he underwent. But he told them, to pray with, to watch with him. And then in verse 40, And when he came to his disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? So in other words, he was gone for one hour praying. Jesus prayed for one hour. How many people here have ever prayed alone? Prayed alone for one hour. It is not easy to pray alone for one hour. It is not an easy thing to pray alone for one hour. Many people do it, but it's not easy. How many people have ever tried to pray all night? How many people here have been successful in praying all night without dozing off? Okay, I got one little hand coming up. Oh, okay. There's another. All right. 
I have tried on several occasions to pray alone all night. And I invariably doze off multiple times during that. I find it very difficult. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, I presume if I was all primed for this and had taken a four-hour nap and woken up at 10 p.m., that I might have been able to make it. But just really staying up all night when you've been up all day is a tough thing to do. Prayer is really tough to do. He told them, I just want you to keep watch with me. Here is the Lord. And they see the guy in torment. This man who has done so much for them, just sweating like drops of blood with his face on the ground, praying. He says, watch with me. He didn't even ask him to pray. He says, just watch with me. And they all fall asleep. He's only been gone an hour. Here's the guys who said, I will die for you. I'm going to die for you. All right? Keep watch with me for one hour. No, no, that's asking too much. I will die for you. But to keep watch with you for one hour, don't you know? I've, I've had a busy day. You know, we've been going back and forth and you know, we just had the Passover feast. You know, it's like the stomach's full. It's tough. And remember, we had to prepare the Passover feast. You know what it's like? You know, taking a lamb and skinning it. You know, that's where they had to start. You know, now we go and it's all cut up in the store and ready to go. I mean, but they had to skin the thing and, you know, do whatever you have to do to to an animal and gut it and cut off its head and all the other things you have to do. So they were tired. And they... They fall asleep. And so Jesus comes back and he says, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? And Jesus is probably thinking, You know, you are the guys who just told me you're going to die for me. You couldn't even watch for one hour. Now he says, Keep watching and praying. So he says, Now I want you to watch and pray. So in other words, it's not just watch. I want you to pray. And pray that you may not fall into temptation. The Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, and, and he came again and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So he had asked them a second time to watch and pray. We don't know if he was gone an hour. Maybe he was only gone 15 minutes this time. We don't know how long. But he says to them, but he comes back and he sees them all snoring away. So here's the three guys who he told them to watch and to pray. They're now asleep. And he didn't even bother them. He didn't wake them up. He just left them there. And he left them again. And he went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. He comes back and he says, you guys are still sleeping? This is the weakness of the human heart. And I am 
you, you, you know, I, I feel at some point I should outgrow this in my life. You know, at some point I should, I should get to a place where, where okay, I, I, I've gotten past all of these things. And I should be able to, to outgrow all of this. Look in, in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And, and here you see Paul sharing a little bit about his own life. In Romans chapter 7, reading from verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Romans 7, now verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the very good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. See what he says? There's so many things that I want to do that are good things. And there's so many evil things that I don't want to do. And I make a commitment. I'm not going to be like that. And I find myself doing it. You know, I, I'll counsel sometimes young people and give them give them things that, that I think that, that uh, they can do to help protect themselves. Let me tell you one of the things that I do that, that helps to protect me because I know my heart is evil. When a, any female comes into my office, the door stays open. The door to my office stays open. And I've told my secretary that if any female walks into my office and they close the door behind them, get up and go open the door. And I said, I, and I usually meet him at the door because he's trying to open the door. And I, I, you know, this woman comes in and I say, sit down, and I'm going to the door to open it. And a lot of times, because I teach organic chemistry, people want to come and cry. And it's just the nature of the subject. And I understand that. But they're going to have to cry with the door open. The door stays open. I say, well, you know, nothing's going to happen. I hope not. But I don't know. Because I'm evil. And in fact, for security purposes, not so much for that purpose, but I like it for that purpose. For security purposes, there's a, there's a, a, a uh, video camera in my room, in my office at all times, and in the outer office. And there's a sign on the office door that says, videotaping in progress. But nobody ever sees it. Because on a couple of occasions, we have people come in and steal stuff. And then we see them. And we call the campus police. The campus police says, oh, I know that guy. And the guy ends up in jail. And so, you know, even with a sign on the door, videotaping in progress, nobody believes it. But, there, but this actually helps me. It gives me a great sense of security. Because there's videotape. And you say, well, what do I do with those videotapes? They get, get rolled over every two weeks. They get copied over again. So, um, but they're there. And I like them being there. So I take steps to protect myself. I appreciate doing that, and Shireen appreciates my doing that. You say, well, things, you know, really wouldn't happen to you. I don't know about that. There's a whole lot of professors that fall that way. And there's a whole lot of Christians that fall that way. 
And so when young people say, you know, what are you talking about? Don't you trust me? I'm like, of course not. I don't even trust myself. I don't. I don't trust you. Because I know that no good dwells in you. Whatever good there is, it's of God. And you can put that down and have the evil of your flesh come out. I know it because I know my own life. And when I share my own weaknesses, I know it's not just me who has these weaknesses. And when I share with young people, they're like, come on, what's wrong with studying in a girl, studying uh, 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 in a room at night with a girl? See, no problem if you keep the door open. Well, I've studied in a room at night before with a girl and nothing's happened. Well, good for you. I hope nothing ever does happen. But it could, and it does. What happens if your leg should bump up against her leg while you're studying? And then your legs kind of stay there. And nobody else is around and the door is shut. You're getting tired. What happens? I don't know. That couldn't happen to me. That's what Peter said. I'd never deny you. And you see how cocky we can be? Why do I need premarital counseling? I don't need that. Tell me about your home life. Well, you know, my parents are divorced. My mother's divorced twice. My father's divorced three times. But what's been modeled to you? I think you might want to get some premarital counseling so you learn something about this stuff. Oh, no, because now I know what not to do. Oh, that's smart. You, you, you see what you deal with with people. And it's not just young people. It's middle-aged people. It's old people. I meet middle-aged women who've been married twice and they're getting married a third time, and I say, you sure you're making the right decision here? Oh, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Oh, really? Did you know the last time and the time before that? And you see how easy it is to raise an offense? Jesus told them, you're all going to fall away because of me. This very night. Peter says, not me. They all might, but not me. Peter, Peter, you specifically, three times you'll deny me before the night is over. Oh, Jesus, I'm going to die for you. And at that point, he just threw up his hands. He didn't say, all right, fine. And that's what happens. At some point, people who care about you just kind of throw up their hands and they say, fine. But you see, the pain that people bring into their lives because of the decisions that they make. And sometimes our parents want to counsel us. and It's like, who are you to counsel me? Well, parents are great for counseling us because they've been down this road before and they know what happens. And sometimes the, the last person we want to listen to are our parents. And they're the ones who see the best for us. I don't care about you nearly as much as your parents do. I really do not. If my, my daughter lives in Jerusalem, Israel, if she calls and says, i got a problem here, I'm on an airplane on my way there. If you're in Jerusalem, Israel, and you call me and you say you got a problem, I will pray with you over the phone. <laughs> but I'm not getting on a plane and going. Because you're not my child. Your parents care about you much more than I ever will. And they also know your areas of strength 
and weakness much better than I know. And so when they give you advice concerning relationships, I think you ought to take heed. And if you say, well, you know, they're not Christians, they still have these amazing eyes and sense that God has given them. Did you know God does bless non-Christians? Did you know that? It says He causes the rain to fall on the believer and the unbeliever alike. And because He cares about people, He gives their parents great wisdom about them. And if you're convinced that this individual is for you, but your parents don't agree, then put that on hold and commit it to the Lord and allow the Lord to change their heart. Did you know God can change the heart of an unbeliever? He did with King Cyrus and Darius. He had decrees made out by these kings who didn't know him. And he said, God even said, Cyrus will give my decree. Cyrus didn't know the Lord, didn't care about the Lord. But God used him to do what was right for the children of Israel. It says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He moves it wherever he wishes. Oh yeah, well God can move the king, but not my parents. It's so easy sometimes to get this feeling like I know all of this. And then we find out how little we know. What should be our response? Look in Luke chapter 18. I mean, here the, the, the Lord is saying, you're going to fall away. Well, what, what should they have done with that? What would have been the proper response? Luke chapter 18, reading from verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, and one, one was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what would have been the right response? Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. If you say I am going to fall away, may it not be far. Cover me by your wings. Protect me, O Lord. God, have mercy on my marriage. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to be a good husband. I don't know how to be a good father. Just because you have a child doesn't mean you're, you're a good mother or you're a good father. God, help me. And you want to know something? God answers. If you sincerely pray, God, help me to make the right decision in choosing a spouse. God, help me to make the right decisions in marriage and relationships. God answers. But the Bible says you do not receive because you do not ask. 
The primary reason for not receiving answers to prayer is that we do not pray, says in in, in James. We don't receive because we don't ask. God, help me. You know, I have to take on this task at the university and I don't know what I'm doing. They, they, they've looked over a group of people and they've plucked me out of this group of people thinking that I'm the least incompetent of this incompetent bunch to put in charge of this office. And I don't know what I'm doing. And I keep going to other people and say, help me here. What do I do? I'm, I, I'm constantly making these missteps. I don't know how to do this. Say, God, help me with this. If we will take things in our lives, our marriage, our relationships, our schoolwork, our careers, and ask God to place His hand upon us and to help us and to guide us, He will. I don't need anybody to tell me what, which job I should take. Did you know, I was, I was 39 years old when I came to Rice University, and I was at another university, and when I got the offer, I asked, Two men that I deeply respect. I asked Shireen's father to pray and to seek the Lord. And then I called him. He says, you know, I have no hesitations with it. You do as the Lord leads you. And I asked my father. My father's not a believer. Doesn't know anything about the Lord. Has never read the Bible. And I asked my father. He said, well, describe to me, you know, the offer." told him the offer. I told him what I, what I had, where I was, and what I will have, and you know the different universities. And he said to me, you know, it's just perfectly clear. He said, you would be an idiot not to take that offer. I mean, this is what I needed. I needed that kind of confirmation. Because he, he understands from a business perspective. And so I want to go to the experts and say, what do I do? You know, I want to, I, I want to learn from other scientists who have large research groups, how do you you run your group like that? And I'm amazed that that there's these kids that will start going out in business and their fathers are these very successful businessmen. They say, well, what does your dad say? I didn't ask him. You're crazy. Your father's a very successful businessman and you won't ask him anything? What is it with you? Why not ask your father? He's a tremendous businessman. Ask him. I don't know what it is with people. You know, a lot of students come to me for advice concerning education. Or should I go to graduate school? What should I do with this? And You know, because I, I've lived in this arena for a long time. I've never left school. Since I was four years old, I've been in school. I'm still here, so I know something about it. So when people come to me, I can give them advice. Do you know who are the last people who come to me regarding advice? concerning education, who do you think? Who? My children. You got it. You got it. You know, so my son will, will, you know, I'll I'll start talking to him about college. Oh, no, 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 you don't know about that. I don't know about that. I don't. I said, who are you going to ask? Oh, I'll ask Sabrina. That's my other daughter. You'll ask Sabrina? She's a sophomore in college, and she knows more about colleges than me, more about what it takes to get into certain schools, what you should do with, with, with getting... She knows more than me? Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay, and then I go cry on Shireen's shoulder that my, my kids don't, don't appreciate any of this. But this is exactly how we are. 
God places all of this before us. I can do it. I'd never deny you. I know what I'm doing. Leave me alone. And Jesus is just shaking his head. He says, you guys, you guys can't even stay awake for one hour. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Father, let us be responsive to your word when your word warns us and forewarns us and tries to guide us. Lord, let us be responsive. Father, I pray for these young people that you would give them hearts of wisdom to so protect them. Hearts of wisdom. Father, may the grace of God be there to so protect them and lead them in the right way. Father, I pray that from this class there would be many good and healthy relationships which spring forth and lead to marriages in good homes and they would have children who love you and honor you. Father, take these young people. Teach them your ways, I pray. Cover them by your blood. In the name of Jesus. Amen.